Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, uh, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jana Byers, and we're here with Guy Rafa, Associate Professor of Italian Studies at UT Austin, about his new book, Dante's Bones, How a Poet Invented Italy, out this year with the Belknap Press, which is a subsidiary of Harvard University Press. Hello, Guy. How are you? Hi, Jana. Doing well. It's great to talk with you. Oh, it's great to talk to you. Thanks so much for meeting with me here virtually. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> so are you in Austin or? Yes, I am yeah. in Austin. I am in my Ooh. kitchen in Austin, Texas, which if you look right now on a on a weather chart is 102 degrees or oh. thereabouts. Right. So we're in that broiling hot summer. Um, so that's the way it is here. And we've been <sighs> fortunate so far, but I think I think it's returned. So we've got a couple of weeks of really, really hot weather. So it's good to be inside and talking. Yeah, sure. No, um, we are in the midst of a heat wave in Amsterdam, although that for us is high 80s and Fahrenheit. Uh, so. Oh, that sounds great. But, you know, you, but we none of us have air conditioning because we only need it one uh, week a year. Right? Okay. So just... So no one's working. That's well, basically what it's come down to. The cool. you know the cafe by my house just closed the door, put a sign up that said "too oh. hot to work." Oh my god! Okay, <laughs> so we're not. <laughs> All, right, well. All right, but yeah, so nice to be in and talking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right. Mm. Uh, so I really enjoyed this book. Um, you know, obviously, uh, I'm a I'm, I love Dante, right? I'm a human being. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I really enjoyed, I feel like I know him so much better now, or at least the idea of Dante. Right. So, uh, and it seems like much of your scholarly life has been dedicated to Dante as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. For yeah. at, least, at least 35 years, let's say. That's, you know, that's a devotion. And this book's about Dante, sure, but really it's, it's about kind of uh, his massive influence, the way he, and the way he's used, right? His memories, literal bones. Mm-hmm. How did this get your attention? Like, why did you write this book? Right. Well, that's it, it's a really it's a complicated story in a way because um, you know, as, as you know, most of my work before this was more on Dante's works itself, right? His, his Divine Comedy, mm-hmm. and I guess I was probably interested in his life, and I was looking at biographical material, and some of that worked its way into this book as well. But um, but then I started finding out more about this crazy story about his bones maybe being lost and then found in 1999, I think it was. Um, the newspapers reported that some Dante dust was found by accident <laughs> in the Florentine Library, the National Library in Florence. And, oh, my gosh, how could that possibly be? And it was it was all over the news. And, and then people started rehearsing the story of how that might have happened. And so that kind of was in my mind, I guess, uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I, I started researching it and just became more and more fascinated with the story of his bones at the same time that, as you said, it's about Dante's influence and sort of the image and the idea of Dante that we've had, that we have today, but that's developed over centuries, over the last seven centuries. 
And so uh, my, my job, I felt, was kind of combining those two stories, the story of mm-hmm. uh, his, what, what I call his graveyard history, everything that happens to the bones and to his tomb and the area around it, um, but then also how that's used by different people from different times with different political, religious, um, artistic agendas, you know, how that inspires them and how they kind of uh, employ Dante for their own purposes. So, uh, so it was kind of a long process and uh, it's one I'm still kind of working out and we'll talk about later in my future work, but, um, but it started that way, uh, looking at Dante's life. And then I wrote this book on his afterlife. And now it sounds, it feels almost, as you said, like kind of like a biography, but a biography of a dead person's bones. Yeah. It was like, as of this, like the 700 years after he died, you right. know, um, which is, you're very in like, so compelling. I can't imagine how you did it. This is so far outside of your academic range. And it's so far wide. It's so wide. We go from Dante's, like what you imagine to be his deathbed scene right. to Dan Brown. So <laughs> how, how on earth did you manage to get this information? Where, how did right. you do this? Obsession, I think would probably be the first okay, word that, that my, my colleagues would, would use and people who know me well, but, um, 10 years, uh, I'd say I've, I've really been working on it. Uh, more or less, uh, you know, my full, my full research time. Um, but, you know, the, the, the breadth of it uh, gets to my interest. I, I come to this whole academic field a little bit uh, differently than a lot of people. I was uh, kind of a science person, you know, when I started out uh, in college and even after college, I worked as an actuary. 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 Right. The people who determine okay. how much you pay for your insurance. Exactly. Right. right. So um, very mathematical. Not a lot of overlap there. <laughs> well, but see, but that's the thing because okay. uh, all the training I got on the science side, I had a I had a very good liberal arts education. So you know, half my transcript was in the humanities and art history and literature and things like that, and half of it was in computer science and math and physics and things like that. Um, but for me, they always went together. I never felt divided over them, um, and so in a way. Uh, all of that interdisciplinary training or that training in disciplines, maybe outside of our usual social sciences, humanities came in handy when I had to sort of read anatomical reports and think about the geography and geometry of all this stuff going on with his gravesite. So all my work has been interdisciplinary over the years. And it's also extended across time because I work on modern Italian literature, 20th century and even contemporary Mm -hmm. Italian literature and culture and have published in those areas as well. So for me, those two always went together and I love to just bring them together. And so this, this kind of was scary, but also the perfect opportunity mm-hmm. to bring together all these disciplines and cross all these time boundaries at the same time. So that was the excitement. The, the hard part was, as you say, how do you sort of, <laughs> how do you sort of gather and keep track of all that information? And that was, that was the challenge to really bring those two, uh, bring those areas uh-huh. all together. And just, I mean, just the breath alone, the amount of outside reading you would have had to do to, mm-hmm. you know, and chasing down this idea of like how Mussolini feels. Eh, we'll, we'll get there, but it, it was really right. impressive. Well, thank you. Um, you brought up also the idea of this term graveyard history, um, which I, I believe you coined. I don't know that mm. I've seen it before, mm. but can you define this for our listeners? So, right. So for me, um, you know, it, it's kind of a comprehensive term. That, uh, that talks about everything about his bones that we're saying, mm-hmm. but then also not just his bones, because a lot of things happen sort of around his, uh, his physical tomb and the area around the tomb. And those become really, really important places uh, and, and 
items in my story in part because the bones are not always in the tomb. <laughs> so the, <laughs> nope. so the, so the, so what I'll call, and I, I use different terms. I use mausoleum. I use maybe mortuary chapel. It's hard to know how to really define this little structure that we would find today. If we went to Ravenna, Italy, and um, you know, one of the places I'm sure we would visit would be Dante's tomb. And we'd see this little, uh, little, relatively speaking, smaller neoclassical temple. And the, the one we see today, the building we see today was built around 1780, 1781, um, by Camilo Morigia. Um, and his his tomb, the, the marble sarcophagus, is inside there. Um, and his bones, we think, are there now, just just to sort of, uh, spoiler alert, uh, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> that's probably where they are now, we think. Um, mm-hmm. Next year is the 700th, 2021 is the 700th anniversary of his death. Um, there had been talk about opening that tomb. I haven't seen anything recently in the Italian news or in the festivities that are planned uh-huh. for the next year to suggest that, but um, but I think we'll just assume they're there. So the graveyard history, right, re- refers to his afterlife, his physical afterlife, which is really striking for someone like Dante, who's such an expert. He's the world, the world's best expert, I guess, in some ways on the spiritual afterlife, right? right. We know right, him right. For, the, for the divine comedy, for the inferno, the purgatorio, the paradiso. So I thought that was also kind of a really kind of maybe ironic, but, but really powerful mm-hmm. connection that the, the person who was so good at describing the spiritual afterlife has had such an adventurous physical afterlife. So that's the other term I use, Yana, I guess, physical afterlife, when I refer mm-hmm. to sort of all of these events that occur to his, uh, his body after his death. But the graveyard history, I think, is, is better because it encompasses also a lot of the renovations and a lot of the activities mm-hmm. that I talk about in some of the chapters of the book that happened uh, over the years, especially in the, uh, you know, in the, in the 20th century under Mussolini's regime. Um, sure. Skeletal history is a term that other people use. You know, when they talk about there are other mm-hmm. books that I mentioned, other famous people who've had very adventurous physical afterlives. Uh, Mussolini himself has. Abraham mm-hmm. Lincoln sure. has. Right? We could probably all think of examples. Yep. Uh, Descartes has. Um, and skeletal history also applies, but graveyard history, I, I don't know if I'm the first to coin it, I, but I certainly make good use of it, I think, in the book. Absolutely. Um, well, I did a quick Google search and okay. just in case you're interested. Great. So I really, you know, with my, I've, I, I think now I'm an, I'm, you know, apparently actually that makes me an expert. A Google ah, search. There you go. I've learned from Facebook, but, um, no, I, I do. It's certainly a good term. Well, I, Part of why I was interested in this term, because I think it captures yet another dimension, mm-hmm. um, which is that people go what graveyards do, right? Wow. Why we're interested in tombs anyway. We go to commune. We go to like get a piece mm-hmm. of them, right? I want to visit Dante in the hopes that my writing might mm-hmm. improve. <laughs> and and there definitely you tell that story. Yeah? Right. I mean, that's so important about uh, how Dante's bones, idea of Dante's bones, mm. um, really, people want to touch that and, you know, and, 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 and hold it and use it. And, you know, uh, so I think the, uh, maybe inadvertently, it's even better than you think. I, you know what? That's a good, that's a really good point. You got me thinking. The best example, I think, from the book that I talk about at, at some length is Byron, the poet uh, Byron, mm-hmm. Joe, uh, Lord Byron, who actually moves to Ravenna at some point. Uh, again, this is in pursuit of one of his many lovers along the way. And, um, and as they're having their affair in Ravenna, he is living just 50 yards or so, I think, from Dante's tomb. Uh, today mm-hmm. we go to Ravenna. There's a Hotel Byron, <laughs> I think, in the area. Um, and he writes some of his best poetry, actually, there. But he talks about going to the tomb 
and it's almost this very sacred ritual. He goes there twice, actually. Once he goes there and he um, he brings his own copy of the Inferno. He has a copy uh, that one of his friends uh, got after Byron died. And it's uh, Byron basically sort of presents the Inferno to Dante as if he's getting Dante to sign it, like in a book signing. You know, Dante and his two would be kind of uh, dedicating the book. And then he goes back a few days later and he brings one of his own volumes of poetry. You know, Byron is, is world famous ah, at that time. Uh-huh. And he kind of leaves it as an offering. But he explicitly goes, just as you said, he goes there in a way to draw inspiration uh, from Dante. He sees Dante as this great model, you know, obviously from Italian literature, which Byron is very interested in. But also, again, this is a major theme, I think, of the whole book as kind of political inspiration, because Byron, like many, uh, many people at that time is already, this is 18, 18, 18, 19, but he's already uh, basically uh, trying to um, rally the troops, rally the cause of Italian liberation. It's still going to be another mm-hmm. 50 years or so before Italy will be liberated. But there are those movements that are actually going to be some, uh, even some military uh, moments along the way. And Byron will be very much involved in that. So Dante, you know, and this is probably maybe a less recognized aspect to his legacy, but Dante is seen again again, as kind of this liberation figure, again, because Mm -hmm. of his own political trials and troubles. Mm -hmm. He was exiled, right? And he has this idea of Italy um, being riven by uh, factionalism and also Mm -hmm. um, foreign intervention. And he wants Italy to be, you know, to be united. It's not a country, obviously, in his day and age, but he wants it to be at least kind of free of of all of those problems. And so Dante becomes the model, uh, and not just for American liberation, uh, not for, (laughs) I I, I jumped ahead, not just for Italian (laughs) liberation, but, you know, as you saw, I think in the book, he becomes that model, Mm -hmm. even for American liberation and freedom in the, uh, during the civil war years for the emancipation of slavery. So, um, so it's, he becomes this figure of liberation for people like Byron politically and inspiration artistically as well. All of those things kind of wrapped up in one. I think that's what makes, makes him so powerful and so interesting over the years. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the very useful afterlife of Dante. Um, I, one of, um, this is a place when we're, you know, there's so many places here where you suggest things that might happen. So before you begin mm-hmm. your book in earnest, right. you include an author's note um, in which you warn that you conjecture, um, mm-hmm. which is really cool. I just loved loved reading this. Uh-huh. And, I, I, and I found it as an historian. It was so great because it makes clear a couple things that I don't think scholars are particularly good at admitting. Right. right? Um, like one that our process is windy and full of steps backwards and morasses Uh and we have to navigate a lot of contradicting material, Mm. which means that two, we do so with care, but at some point we just have to make basically educated, very, very educated guesses. (laughs) Um, And sometimes we're wrong, you know, and sometimes we will, someone will show that we're wrong. So I, do you have a comment on that? I think maybe I just talked. I don't no, know what my I, question is. Well, I'm so glad you brought it up. I, you know, I have to say that very, that very short author, I'm looking at it right now on my iPad as we talk here. And it's, you know, it's basically just two paragraphs and um, it's probably my favorite, <laughs> favorite part <laughs> of the book for me. Uh, and in part, because I'm being very playful here, I'm sort of, you know, right. letting the reader know that, this story is going to be kind of almost uh, you know, so strange, you know, but stranger mm-hmm. than fiction, but actually true. Um, but I'm just going to read one sentence from it because you just sort of, uh, you just kind of uh, paraphrased it, but it's, it's some of my, I think it gets at what you're talking about. I say that uh, in spite of basically me telling you what 
people have purported to have said and done, I'm frightfully aware that for certain episodes, even the best available sources of information are vague, incomplete, obscure, or blatantly contradictory. I think I would add biased in there now too, in our current age. <laughs> sure. Sometimes all at once. And then I think this is this is the key. I aim above all to clear a path through the shadowed wood of Dante's graveyard history. There it is, but not necessarily a straight one. Strange twists and knotty complications are an essential feature of the story and they deserve respect. That's one of those sentences when I wrote it, I said, okay, that feels just right because uh, this yeah. is going to be a, this is going to be a windy story. It's going to have complications. And as you say, my sources are going to be all over the place and, you know, I'll do the best I can to sort through them, but we don't know, right? All of this has happened the way it did. And in 2021, if they opened up the tomb, maybe they would find something new, you know, that I didn't know about and nobody else right. uh, sort of knew about. So I think I, I ended my note by saying, if and when new discoveries provide greater understanding, no one will be more pleased than I to join Dante's Virgil and saying, let no falsehood deceive the truth. So, you know, it's a, it's a constant uh, process, right? In terms of trying right. to get it as right as you can. But also, yeah, as you said, I, even though I'm, I'm doing this tongue in cheek, it's, it's a recognition that as, as, uh, as scholars, as historians, right, we're, we're dealing with material that is that is messy, and uh, and we just do the best we can. So, right, I wanted to be upfront about the conjecture. You know, that said, and it, so that note could be at the beginning of a Dan Brown novel or something. That would be that would that would work in a in a in a fictional thriller that sort of pretends to be true. Um, but obviously, my book is not that. So, you know, so I do try to stay uh, stay faithful to the evidence. But I do have to kind of sometimes uh, conjecture, as you said, you know, to kind sure. of imagine. And I, 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 what I did is what I did in the book, because it is an academic book, you know, published with Harvard. I tried to be upfront about that and say, OK, so uh-huh. here I'm providing what I think is a very reasonable uh, reenactment, let's say, or reconstruction uh-huh. of the scene you know, based on the evidence. I'm not going to make up dialogue, so I'm not going to write a, no, a, right. a, a historical with, with, fiction. You're not Dan right. Brown. Right. I'm not Dan Brown. <laughs> Uh, and I don't I want, I didn't want to do that here. Really? So, um, but, but I am setting a scene. I am setting a mm-hmm. scene, but that means I'm going to look at what the weather was like on June 11th, you know, 1865. And I can get that information. I don't have to make mm-hmm. it up. You know, I can sort of get that. Uh, but then I don't know what it, what it sounds like when the pickaxe is hitting. I mean, I do know what it sounds like for a pickaxe to hit bricks, but I wasn't there at that moment when this particular one happened. Um, but I can sort of, from my own experience uh, with a pickaxe hitting bricks, you know, as a teenager, I can, I can sort of imagine Ooh. what that sounded like. Yeah. So yeah, you know, no, so I brought, so that's how I said so that's how I did that. But but yes, right. So it, it's history, but but it, there's also a lot of room here for uh, conjecture, at least interpretation, as there always is. Well, I mean, the other options I think are untenable. So right. either we only write about what we can prove without a shadow of a doubt, mm-hmm. boring, right? Yeah. Like then we go nowhere, or we're dishonest, and that's on that's equally mm-hmm. impossible. Right. But I mean, part of it is that you are on you're pulling apart this mystery, right? I mm-hmm. just imagine you coming across a thing and coming across some item of information and opening, you know, and running to your library <laughs> and finding more things. You you have a genuine mystery on your hands. That's right. Yeah. And I tried to structure it that way. Right. I tried to at least give the uh, give the structure of sort of a thriller or a mystery, you know, at the same time that we we know kind of how it's going to end up. All right. So let's go there. Right. Part one of your book, Bones of Contention and Nationhood, starts at with, right at the beginning. Dante's death, his funeral entombment, entombment uh, mm-hmm. the translation. That's a, a mm-hmm. technical term. But then when you move the bones of someone, usually saints, but yeah. uh the translation of his remains legal and illegal. Um, and so this is, this, it, 
you start with this describing this very long process. So I think my favorite, uh, what I really want to know, my, my favorite mm-hmm. question throughout the book, where are Dante's bones? Ah, yes. So they are in Ravenna, Italy. Um, and in his the tomb, as I said, is in this little neoclassical um, building structure uh, that we can visit today. Uh, you can get on Google Maps and probably even get some good images of it even that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, they have been they have been resting there. We we think you know peacefully, hopefully, um, at least since um, World War II. So that's going to be the last time in my story when they're actually moved somewhere. And we can maybe get to that a little later. That's one of my favorite uh, stories of displacement. But um, but we think they are back there. So they are they and they never moved very far actually as well. I mean, my story is going to get into adventures where we don't know where they are. Um, but it turns out uh, they will always be sort of in the general area, but, but they're not always going to be in the tomb itself. They're going to get stolen and they're going to get refound and they're going to get examined and they're going to get put by reburied uh, and then they're going to have to be taken out again. Um, so sometimes uh, purposely and, or with knowledge mm-hmm. of, of, of the public and sometimes not. Um, but they are in and have always been, it seems, at least in Ravenna uh, since the day Dante died in 1321. <laughs> Are you sure? Are you sure about this? <laughs> I can't be sure. You're right. And as I said, oh. 20, 2021 is around the corner. Maybe they'll, they'll confirm it. Um, but, uh, but at least we know they were put back there. And um, so unless they were taken again uh, in, the, in the dark of night yeah. sometime, they, they should still be there. Well, you know, because I, I visited, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, gone to be inspired by Dante. And when I was reading this, I was like, was he even in there? Uh. Was I talking to somebody? Who was I talking to? Mm. Um, but uh, let's mention, give me a couple of highlights from the trip. What a, um, I would like to know about the pilfering Franciscans. Right. <laughs> I think everyone wants to hear about them. Oh, the theft is the best part. I, and, and that's really, and that's why in a way, even before the part that you described where I, I get to his death, I have a prologue, right? Where I actually give you this scene in 1865, May 27th, 1865. Uh, they are renovating a chapel, which is about, Oh, eight meter, 25 feet or so from Dante's uh, mezzanine, his tomb. And lo and behold, the pickaxe hits the wall because they have to make some room to get the handle of a pump in there to pump out water as they're working in the excavations. And they hit wood and this plank of wood sort of opens up and bones start to fall out into the muddy water <laughs> below. And the poor oh God. the poor stonemason, this man, Pio <laughs> Folletti, uh, starts to pick them up. Her, he, he probably knows right away they're human bones. Um, but what's even more striking is that plank of wood that fell out of the wall has an inscription on it, and it says uh, Dantes Osa, or the bones of Dante. It's Latin, uh, and so this obviously raises lots of lots of alarms. And so, you know, I start the book actually with that discovery, that amazing discovery that took place in 1865 on May 27th of these bones that then they had to determine later if they belonged to Dante or not. Um, and that's and, and that's in a way to set up this sort of mystery. How did those bones kind of uh, get there, and and who was the one who sort of put them there? So anyway, to get back to your question, those uh, that wooden box, that sort of makeshift coffin that was sort of hidden behind a wall, a, a, a bricked over wall, and was accidentally found. There's the conjecture and the accident. Accidentally found in uh, in 1865. It turns out that the person who wrote those inscriptions was uh, a Franciscan. He was he was the uh, the, uh, the Father Superior of the Franciscan Order that that had their uh, cloisters and their convent just on the other side of the wall where Dante's mausoleum was. So in a way, Dante's mausoleum kind of almost belonged to them. And so, you know, I don't get to this until about halfway through the book, 
But we find out later that, in fact, the Franciscans in probably around 1519, uh, because that's when that's when the conditions were right. That's when they had a, a pope who was from Florence. Um, pope Leo X mm-hmm. was from Florence, and he actually controlled Ravenna, which was a papal state at that time. So he could actually lock up the, uh, the local uh, policemen and people like that. And so they could do whatever they want. And the Florentines uh, come in the middle of the night thinking they're finally going to get their Dante back, the Dante that they sent into exile. They're going to get his bones to bring back to Florence and put in the cathedral of Santa Croce with the famous church in Florence, where we find the tombs of Galileo and Machiavelli and Michelangelo. Uh, and they're going to bring Dante back. They open the tomb and it's empty. So <laughs> somebody got there first, obviously. <laughs> oh, uh, can you and imagine? <laughs> somebody got there first. And, um, you know, it's kind of one of those bad news scenarios. They probably don't announce it publicly because they would make them look so bad and so stupid and foolish. Um, they probably know the Franciscans are the ones who did it, but they don't really know what to do about that. And so uh, the bones are probably gone from 1519 uh, until they put in that wall that, that, uh, that I talked about earlier. And I found with the pickaxe in 1865, they're probably put in the wall around 1810. And I say that because uh, historically we know that's when uh, Napoleon was in power mm-hmm. and controlling much of uh, much of northern Italy. And the Napoleonic laws basically drove a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, the friars and the uh, the monks out of the convents and the monasteries. And so the Franciscans, when they left, they probably put the bones uh, in the wall, hiding them there, thinking, I eh, will come back one day and get them. We'll pick them up another time. Yeah, and of course, yeah. of course, that doesn't happen. And, and then they're fine by accident, uh, probably the, 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 the uh, 55 years later in 1865. So in any case, yes, the Franciscans probably in the dead of night before the Florentines got there, when they, when they knew that the Florence, Florentines were coming for the bones, they said, we're not going to let Dante leave Ravenna. He belongs to us now, and uh, and because their convent, <laughs> their convent. This was the this was the uh, the criminal scene here, the crime mm-hmm. scene, because their convent was so close to Dante's tombs. They were able to basically, uh, they didn't have to go through the front door and, and take the, the lid off the tomb where, where where everybody would know what they were doing. They were able to sort of just uh, chisel through their wall, through the back wall of Dante's uh, chapel and his tomb. His, his physical tomb was actually embedded partly in that back wall. They were actually able to reach through and actually pull his bones out one by one, probably with either with tongs or with their hands, uh, because there was a space of about uh, six to eight inches. And uh, but can I can I ask you? Do you have why do you think there was one bone they couldn't fit through the uh, through the narrow uh, the narrow space there? Yeah, well, they, I mean, they can't break it, right? Yeah, they can't break his head, right? So, no, it's called so, and that's too important. So that's why in 1890, when they finally figure out what had happened there, uh, somebody basically, you know, goes back into the convent and sort of takes the wall apart a little bit, and <laughs> and, and they can see the back of the tomb, and they can actually see that space I was talking about. There's actually a chisel part that goes down into the base okay. of the tomb. So they actually had to get a chisel out and, and break off part of the tomb so they could reach their tongues in and pull out Dante's skull. So anyway, so oh, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's brilliant. I mean, just to see yeah. that sight, right. And their little brown oh, robes. Right. Right. <laughs> so I, so that's one of the moments, yes, Yana, that's one of the moments where I had to, I had to imagine it a little bit, let's say I, yeah. I, I wasn't there that night, obviously. So I have to sort of imagine we, we pretty much know from the evidence how they did it. Um, but I kind of reconstructed that scene a little bit. Um, how they yeah. would have actually done that. And that's about in the middle of my book, though. So, you know, we have to work our way back up to, to that time from the beginning. Um, but that's that's why the bones uh, were actually uh, found in 1865 somewhere else, because they had been taken into the convent and then later hidden in that wall uh, where they were found. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, what, I, why is it so important for Florence and Ravenna? Why are why are monks thieving uh, in the middle of the night? Why do we have to get a pope to march over? Right. So, so a lot of the earlier chapters of the book, I think it's Florentine remorse. Right? They feel remorse. They they they've kicked Dante out in in thirteen oh one thirteen oh two is when Dante's exiled from Florence for political reasons. He's on the wrong side, and he's on the wrong side not just of the uh, political faction, the, the black wealth faction that's, that's, that's looking to, to, to stage a coup, but he's also on the wrong side of the Pope at the time, Pope Boniface mm-hmm. VIII, Dante's arch enemy that people know if they read the Divine Comedy, Dante gets his revenge many times over on Boniface VIII, um, who's not dead yet at the time of the journey through the afterlife, but Dante tells us he's coming. So he basically damns this Pope before he dies. Um, but in any case, Dante, uh, you know, Dante's exiled, but then Florence realized Dante becomes the great poet, right? Not, not long after his death, he, he, his, his work becomes the bestseller of the, of the late Middle Ages uh, as it starts to circulate the manuscripts. And, um, and everybody is celebrating Dante as this great poet. And they, you know, they, the, the political times have changed. And, and so by 1378, maybe even earlier, Boccaccio was already writing uh, mm-hmm. before that about how uh, Florence did Dante wrong. And if they had any common sense, they would try to get him back. But of course, Dante won't even want to go back because he he's probably happier in Ravenna uh, since Florence uh, ditched him. Uh, but then they will have these serious efforts, 1378, 1396, 1429. These are all dates that we can ascertain where Florence makes mm-hmm. petitions uh, to Ravenna. And then the biggest one, or you know, one of the biggest ones is 1476, when Lorenzo de' Medici, Lorenzo the Magnificent, is controlling Florence. He makes a pitch to the ambassador from Venice, because Venice is controlling Ravenna for much of this mm-hmm. time, Bernardo Bembo, a very powerful, powerful man. And um, Bembo is supposed to sort of uh, give Florence the bones, but then they, they fall into uh, political difficulties, the two, the two uh, cities, mm-hmm. and Bembo doesn't do it. And so Bembo renovates the tomb, and that's the tomb we see today. A lot of that was done in 1481, 1483. So the actual tomb, and there's a sculpted image of Dante above the tomb. That happens then. But they still don't get the bones back. And then, uh, I guess, after Lorenzo, his son, Giovanni de' Medici, becomes pope, as I said, Leo Mm -hmm. X, and they petition him. And then they have actually the power to actually go to Ravenna. But, as I said, the bones are not going to be there. So Florence is going to try it, try it all through these years. And then even after those years, they will try to sort of get the bones back uh, right through the unification period. They will make a, a major petition in 1864, 1865, uh, right before the uh, the 600th anniversary of Dante's birth and a, and a big day in Italian history. Uh, and Ravenna at that point will say, well, you know what? Dante's not in exile anymore because now we're a country. So wherever he is in Italy, he, he's home. He's home. He doesn't have to be in Florence. He's home in Ravenna. So was, I think it was, I was finishing the book in summer 2019, last summer, and the news was reporting that Florence and Ravenna were in negotiations. The two mayors were actually talking <laughs> about a temporary, a temporary transfer of Dante's bones to Florence, you know, the way like a museum yeah. lends their most, the most precious artwork. Sure, right. They were going to yeah, do yeah. one of those. I, and I think it's fallen apart. I, I've, I've tried to do some more recent research. We can look later. I haven't seen any, any follow-up to that, but, but they've still been trying to at least find a way to celebrate Dante in Florence, even if it would only be, I don't know, they would bring the, bring the tomb there for a year or two and then bring it back yeah, to Ravenna or something like that. It would be quite an ordeal. But even then in 2019, they said, no, this is unlikely to happen. Yeah, no. I mean, I wouldn't trust them after 700 years. Um, you know, while you were talking, I just remembered of when I was doing one of my trips, my research trips to Venice, I remember somebody explaining to me 
that like this was a win for Venice, that mm. Venice had protected Dante's bones. Right. Like that, the, you know, that this was like actually Dante was in Venice. Because that's a very Venetian way to look at the world. Ah, actually. Um, <laughs> so like, I completely forgotten about that. I'll have to think about it and make sense of it later. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, so he, so Dante is, um, you know, this, this symbol, I mean, really uh, of just power, right? He's used this kind of this idea of who's stronger, who has power, to whom does he belong? But then in the 19th century, he really does take on this other kind of outsized significance, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And becomes even more important. Um, so one of the things um, I, th- I think a, a little vignette we would li- like I would like to talk about and kind of draw meaning out of is uh, the desire to find Dante's true face. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, in the 19th century we see this happen. So what's going on there? Right. So it, so everybody at some point Dante. So going to where you started, Dante at by the you know, even by the late 18th century, but certainly into the 19th century. Now he is sort of recognized, not just as a great poet, but he's recognized, you know, kind of the, the father of the Italian language too, in, in some way. Yeah. The, the right. language and, and the literature go together, right? Um, and Tuscan, right? That the language of Dante and Boccaccio and, and Petrarch will become kind of the, you know, the highest mm-hmm. level of Italian language um, and literature. Um, but he's also now, because of the political ferment of the especially as we move into the 19th century, he's recognized as, I think I, I call him the ancestral father and prophet mm-hmm. of Italy. You know, father, because he's almost, it's almost like, you know, a George Washington figure, I think, you know, we mm-hmm. would say, but but obviously yeah. before the, you know, w- way before Italy would become a country. So that's why I would say ancestral, you know, as opposed to a, a, a Garibaldi figure, let's say, who would mm-hmm. be kind of the, you know, father of unification or one of them. Um, so he's, but he's the ancestral father and the Italian writers and thinkers will, will constantly refer to him that way, but also the prophet, almost like a biblical prophet, um, because Dante talks about Italy so much in the divine comedy. Uh, and he actually maps out the borders in some ways, right. In terms of what, what kind of belongs to Italian uh, shores or what's mm-hmm. within the Italian borders. So he will be used in the 19th and then especially in the early 20th century as kind of the cartographer, the map maker of Italy as they make claims on different lands that are still outside the borders. But in any case, so he's the father and the prophet. And so everybody has to kind of make Dante into their own image. And that's where the face probably mm-hmm. sort of comes in. Sure. Yeah. And so if you're an Italian, um, an Italian uh, political thinker, Republican Italian thinker, you know, in the sense of, uh, of a nation, uh, then you're going to make Dante into sort of your, you know, one of, one of your followers or one of your uh, precursors, let's say, the person who kind mm-hmm. of inspires yeah. you. But if you're on the church's side, because obviously the Catholic Church does not want to uh, give up Rome, let's say, as the capital mm-hmm. of the New Italy, it's going to take another 10 or so years before that happens, even after unification. So for, for them, you know, Dante will have sort of a different image. He will be sort of the model of sort of this great, great spiritual, you know, this great Catholic, you know, from the Middle Ages, but mm-hmm. it's a great uh, spiritual mm-hmm. figure. So everybody is sort of making they're they're refashioning Dante kind of in their own image or in the image of their uh their ideological agenda, their political agenda. And and so uh but then we're also starting to find actual faces of Dante in the sense that we have these these sculptures, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Um, we have the famous right. one yeah. that we find today in Piazza Santa Croce by uh, Enrico Pazzi, the huge colossal statue of Dante mm-hmm. that is right up against the church. Uh, that was actually uh, inaugurated on May 14th, 1865. So in that 600th anniversary of his birth, just 10 days before those bones are found in Ravenna. Um, and so we have that image of a very austere, severe, 
um, Dante, right. who is his, you know, he's representing the country, but also let's get the country all together. Let's get Venice back. Let's get yeah. Venice. Let's get Rome because they're not part of the country. But then they find this very sweet image of Dante in the Bargello, one of the famous buildings of Florence that they think it maybe is by Giotto. We don't think today it's by Giotto, but maybe by Giotto, the famous painter, his school. And it's a very, very, uh, it's a younger Dante. It's the Dante of the Vita Nuova, of, the, of his earlier work, right. The New Life. It's Beatrice. The lover of Beatrice, yeah. exactly, right. Yeah, and, it's, and, it's Beatrice's lover. Right, yeah. and so that's another image of Dante over the centuries, right, Dante? And, and this great love affair of Dante mm-hmm. and Beatrice from his perspective, obviously. Um, so these are the competing images that sort of start to, and that's 1840, 1841, when they mm-hmm. discover that uh, that fresco. And we still can, we can see that many, many times over. So these are these images of Dante and his true face is basically a way of saying, okay, well, Dante kind of belongs to me, right? And he belongs to my, uh, my cause. Uh, and that's, you know, that's start as you said, that's starting up here very, very strongly here in the, you know, in the unification period in the 19th century, but it's going to become maybe even more important, I think, in the early right. 20th century, uh, the next time that his body is exhumed. Um. Yeah. And that idea too, I mean, you know, there's the, the proverb about, you know, how, in uh, in Rome you pray, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so what is he? Is he the lover? Is he the devoted Catholic? Like right. to whom does he belong? To what does he represent? What is the goal of Italy? What's what is a unified Italy supposed to look like? Mm. Um, he's really useful in this way. Then let's talk about uh, Dante and the fascists, which was I was not prepared for. Right? <laughs> this was um, <laughs> this 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 so the fascist use of of Dante was really stretching for me. Like, right. It was difficult. And, and I want to be upfront here. There's been some excellent scholarship on this that I, that I make very good use of, I, I hope, in the book uh, on Dante under fascism. I think what I'm probably bringing to this conversation is the focus, again, on his graveyard history and connecting that uh, to the fascism. So in any case, so the event, I guess, the, the key event there would be um, leading into World War I, you know, Italy is famously uh, not decided at the beginning which side they're going to okay. go into the war on. And in, it's, I guess the, it's 1915 when they actually declare war finally on Austria and then on Germany a few months later. But it's actually using Dante that they get into the war. In other words, uh, D'Annunzio, Gabriele D'Annunzio, who is the most important person in Italy at, at the time. He's, he's a great writer, poet, novelist, but a war hero, uh, even from before that. Um, but he's also this person who commands great, great uh you know, kind of respect in the, in the press and the popular, he's a, he's a populist leader. He, he's one of these people that we would, you know, we would sort of uh, be very wary of today, but, um, but he's, he's very charismatic and he's going to be Mussolini's main competitor uh, in a few years, but he gets Italy basically into the war, intervening in the war in part by calling on Dante by saying, look, you know, we have to sort of live up to the, to the great example of Dante, you know, where uh, we, we would crown him in Rome, et cetera. And so he kind of rallies the troops, uh, rallies the, the Italian public to eventually come on the side of war. And they go into war. Dante becomes used in the war for wartime propaganda with, with uh, stamps and postcards, things like that. And then coming out of the war, obviously, Italy you know, is on the winning side, but it's, it's called a mutilated victory. Uh, Denuncio actually coins that phrase. Uh, in other words, they, they won, but yeah, but they, they paid a really high price. And what did they get for it? They lost 600,000. 650,000 people, and they expanded their borders a little bit, but they didn't get a lot of other things they thought they would get. They got kind of stabbed in the back a little bit in the in the negotiations, uh, the American president especially, and <laughs> did, not, did not sort of treat them very well. And so in 1921, just a few years after the end of the war, it's the 600th anniversary of Dante's death, and there's a huge, uh, a huge uh, kind of a series of celebrations and, and ceremonies in Ravenna. 
in some ways to celebrate the, the military, to honor the military, mm-hmm. the, the dead and the wounded. And so they are the biggest presence at that time. This is also the time around the world, many different places, where having the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is starting to be, uh, starting to be sort of inaugurated in, in Rome and Italy, uh, obviously in the United States and France and other places, in England and other places. But, um, but the, uh, the fascists are starting to sort of rise up in this time. This is a year before Mussolini will actually come to power in the March on Rome, and they actually crash the ceremonies in the middle of these ceremonies in 1921 at Dante's tomb. And I talk about this at great length. I don't think that's a story that, that is all that well known. Um, and no. in fact, even some of my best, this going back to our, our original uh, original point about sources, this is one of those places where some of my best sources are kind of quiet on it. And, and I don't know if they're embarrassed. Some of these people actually will tend to uh, lean toward the fascists in the years to come. So Maybe, you know, maybe they were more, in other words, they were more against the socialists and the communists than they were against the fascists. And even the church, which was also one of the targets of the fascists at this time, um, you know, did not sort of really publicize this all that much. But, but there's enough available to sort of piece it together. And so, yeah, the fascists kind of uh, go to Dante's tomb and they claim Dante as, as one of theirs, essentially. You know, they're saying that Dante is uh, is kind of a precursor of fascism on something Mussolini will actually you know call on Dante as one of the animating animating principles of sort of the fascist revolution as they tra- as they um, transition uh, from a military to a political entity and so yeah Dante will now be refashioned not just as the mm-hmm. father of the nation but as kind of the precursor of the dictator of Mussolini himself mm-hmm. uh, in the years to come. So it's, it's a very uh, unsettling uh, kind of association for those of us who study these things, but mm-hmm. uh, nonetheless, very, very important, I think, to, to realize. Yeah. Well, and the, the idea that he's the ideal fascist man, right? Mm-hmm. The, like, this profound masculine demonstration <laughs> of Italian-ness. Right. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it, it was a little unsettling to think about Mussolini and Dante as and, bedfellows, and a little bit funny because when they look at the bones and and the the two uh, doctors, the physical anthropologists, these very very renowned anthropologists, Giuseppe Sergi and Fabio Frassetto, uh, who will go on to publish a lot of works around about about this event, they are the ones who actually the the body is exhumed to go back to the graveyard history. Mm-hmm. The body is exhumed in 1921. Um, again, not very publicly. In fact, they're trying to keep this out of the public. It's after the ceremonies, uh, just a few weeks after, and they're trying to do it secretly. But they're doing this because they want to do a more accurate uh, measurement of that. They actually really want to. They, they don't think that in 1865 the doctors knew what they were doing <laughs> when they measured things. That they, they, they didn't have all of the knowledge and skills. So they're actually examining the, the skeleton. And they're also adding some of the pieces that had been stolen in 1865. Because remember those bones that fell out of the wall? Right, yeah. They didn't all go yeah, back. Yeah. They didn't all go back. No, of course. Somebody, of course not. Some, I found a piece. Of- I found a piece. I stuck it in my pocket. So there are all of these uh, so-called relics, fragments. And I, 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 I have a whole chapter on this in the book. Um, and most of them turn out to be false. And many of them turn out not to be even human. Somebody picked up a, a lamb's bone or something. Uh, but, um, but one or two, actually, I think one in particular ends up to be authentic. And so they add that back to the skeleton in 1921 when they zoom it. So there's a very there's a very kind of good scientific reason for that work. But if we read the descriptions, and this is where it's fascinating from sort of a cultural anthropological point of view, when you read the, the anatomical descriptions that these um, these anthropologists are using, they're calling Dante's bones incredibly robust and virile, and they're using language that doesn't seem to really be relevant uh, to the issue at hand. 
Uh, and the way I read that anyway is that this is almost kind of a proto-fascist, you know, kind of mm-hmm. um, way of, of making Dante into this, as you say, this not just this um, virile masculine uh, embodiment of sort of uh, of fascism, the way Mussolini's body will be used also. He will always pose with his shirt off and doing athletic things to sort of uh, talk about yeah. uh, his virility. But um, but Dante will also be seen as the um, as the ideal representative of the Mediterranean race, whatever that would mean in, in, right. uh, in anthropological yeah. terms. And so it's a racialized uh, masculine identity that is ascribed to him uh, by the doctors themselves, by the physical anthropologists themselves, the scientists themselves. And that will serve, I think, the fascist purposes as they sort of go on. Ironically, I say because Dante was—he was rather a small person, or I guess medium height, maybe or so, for mm-hmm. his time and place. But the doctors actually say his—I don't know—his collarbone was somewhat feminine. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like he's—he's he's a big brawny sort of person here. Um, and but yet they're—they're they're making it into this image of virility and Mediterranean superiority because they're going right. to, they're also going to talk about as, as you, as you saw the, the phrenology, the idea of the brain, mm-hmm. how big his brain must've been and, and also how it must've shown all of these inclinations to a great uh, artistic intellectual achievement mm-hmm. and things like that. Everything that's been discredited many, many times over <laughs> in terms of how we study these things. But in any case, that's going to be very, very uh, much of the fore in these, uh, in these documents that I studied from 1921. So um, interesting, you referred to um, the return of the relic, the Dante's, you know, the relic of as it, his bones. That's a pretty specific word, guy. Right. Yeah. We wanna... Yeah, yeah. That's that's and that's that's another running theme through the book. I I, I, mm-hmm. I felt very important uh, that that was a discovery to me too as I read through the material. Dante is treated as a saint, right? I think that's mm-hmm. that's that's play. I, I said ancestral father and prophet, and I probably add to that. Uh, to that list, the saint, and so a secular saint, perhaps, but but certainly a saint. And you know, for those of us who study the Middle Ages or the early modern period, we know hagiography. We know a lot of these. Uh, a lot of the emphasis on sainthood has to do with relics, right? And mm-hmm. and the translation, translation, as you said, in this very technical term of moving the body to a place, usually near an altar in a church, that is sort of special meaning for the person. So the famous example of, I guess, Saint Mark in Venice, right? Right. His body being brought there at some point. And so that's not a term that I'm just imposing on the story. That's a term that I actually find, find translation in Latin or in Italian that I find mm-hmm. over and over again in the document. So even the t- petition to Pope Leo X that I mentioned earlier in 1519, uh, the, the, the writers use a word like uh, a translation. It, it, so they're talking mm-hmm. about bringing Dante back to Florence. So it's as if he were a saint and they need to get his body back. Uh, to the church that would be most important to him, which in this case would be Santa Croce in Florence. By the way, one of the signatories to that letter, just as an aside, is Michelangelo. So Michelangelo, oh, sure, the, the, the great Michelangelo signs that petition to the Pope in 1519. And what does he promise to do? He says, look, if we get Dante back here, I promise to make, uh, he says in a very rough Italian, I promise to make a, a, a worthy tomb for him in an appropriate place in the city, or an honorable place in the city, basically saying that he'll build a tomb for him probably in the church of Santa Croce, but yeah, but the language is all about sainthood. So relics, right. relics uh, are translated. Relics are special, right? Because they actually sort of uh, contain the essence of the of the person. Right. And if you have contact with the relic, right, that is supposed to help you in some way. Relics are displayed. Yeah. People go to make pilgrimages to see the relics, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so Dante's remains will often be referred, not just by me, but on by the writers of the mm-hmm. times 
they will be referred repeatedly as relics, as precious, as treasure, and things like all the term pious, holy, all the words that would sort of go with that uh, with that term. So that's a that's a through line in the book, right? How the uh, how the body is treated as a saint's body, uh, sort of would, and it, it's worshipped in that way. And I think that as um, I think that's an important point to make as we move on, like another demonstration of how important this graveyard history as a term is, mm. you know, because it's about the physical closeness, you know, this medieval idea of moral contagion, right? You mm. get close to something holy and you get a little bit of the holy, right. right? So the idea that his, his relics as well, like you need to, you need to have his body. I just, right. um, another one of these scenes that in my head is very funny is, you know, the, the stone mason he's like bones start falling out on him and he's like do 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 and it just puts a little finger in it right or whatever it is and he shoves it in his pocket um but i that's a very important kind of through line here is the idea that dante i mean another another uh kind of facet of this outsized importance um and in the the other uh, kind of point about that happens here in part three that I want to mm. bring out today, I learned that Longfellow had a bit of Dante with him in Massachusetts. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And, you know, it, it, it's great that you brought that up, Yana. So I mentioned this. I think I have a couple of paragraphs on it in the book. Um, and as I, as I mentioned for Longfellow, Longfellow is uh, right. He's, trans, he's, he's giving us the first complete American translation, American English translation of Dante in the 1860s, right? So, so he's very much indebted to Dante. He's teaching Dante. And then when he quits his mm-hmm. teaching job at, at Harvard, he, he devotes a lot of his writing time to Dante. Um, and around 1872, I think it is, he actually comes into possession of a piece of that box that I mentioned, that, that, mm-hmm. that, that very, very sloppily constructed wooden box that fell out of the wall in 1865. Well, people didn't just put, pick up pieces of bones that, they, that were in the area. Some of them actually picked up pieces of the box itself. And so one of the people who did that was one of the stonemasons. We actually have a, uh, a testament by him, a piece of parchment uh, that he wrote out and had notarized and signed by three or four different people. And that is actually in Longfellow House today. If we go to Cambridge, Massachusetts today, right off the Harvard campus, uh, it's a national park. And it's actually called uh, Washington's uh, Headquarters, uh, Long- Longfellow House, Washington's Headquarters uh, National Park, because Longfellow actually lived in the house uh, for a good portion of his life that George Washington had used as his headquarters right at the start of the Revolutionary War in 1775. 1776. So I found it just amazingly poignant. I, I've been to Longfellow House and I've been in this room uh, there. Anybody can go. Uh, Longfellow, when he when he took possession of this piece of the box that Dante's bones had been uh, found in, and it's a long story how he gets that, uh, that, that relic, he basically enshrines it in his study, the same study in which George Washington had met with with Benjamin Franklin and John Adams and all his generals in 1775 during the siege of Boston, uh, right at the start, basically, or right, you know, right at the start of the Revolutionary War. So incredibly historic place for lots of reasons. But but yes, there's, there's a there's a way in which that piece of Dante, that's the one piece that I found that actually crossed the Atlantic <laughs> and uh, from 1872 uh, has been uh, sort of in Longfellow House, but it's all connected back to 18. 18- 65. So I don't write about that a lot in the book, in part because I'm focused on Italy, but in, I've written an article on that. Uh, people can sort of look up on that relic that's online in California Italian Studies, and I give the full uh, the full criminal investigation of the provenance of the chain of custody. Mm-hmm. I think I had to learn a lot yeah, of I, I had to learn a lot of detective 
vocabulary, but the chain of custody of this relic uh, from the time it, it uh, was picked up by the stonemason in 1865 to the time that Longfellow got it into his, uh, into his study that George Washington had used as his, uh, as his headquarters. Uh, so it's a fascinating story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So America, um, American liberation, mm-hmm. revolution, unification, right. Dante can be what you want him to be. Right. Right. Um, you know, before we move off Longfellow, I tried to read that translation oh. and it's, wow, it's Victorian. Yeah. 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 No, I, I get um, yeah. What, what do you think? I, I don't think no? that, that's not the one I recommend to people. Let's put it that no, way. Yeah. It's, it's great. That's, it's great as a historic document. Um, and, and some of Longfellow's poems are definitely, you know, definitely up there and, and worth reading, uh, but the, the translation, uh, his commentaries may be more interesting. He has a very long commentary sure. that goes along with it. Uh, but no, absolutely. It, it's available, I guess, in public domain. And so it's used often, but, um, but no, it's, it's, no. There, there are many, many better modern translations that you can, you can find. This makes me sad. My mm. students will read it cause it's free. And I'm like, but, ah, no. but you know, you get what you pay for. We say that for a reason, right. but so what is your favorite translation? Do you, you know, have it, one? It, it's hard to sort of pinpoint because they, they serve different purposes. So mm-hmm. I often, in my teaching, I often use a uh, Bantam has a very, very, uh, inexpensive one by Alan Mendelbaum. And, and I say inexpensive because I want my students to be able to afford it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a, and I, but I also use that one because um, it has the Italian on one side. So even when mm-hmm. I, te- I teach Dante very often, uh, often, usually more than once a year, um, but I almost, even if I'm teaching it in translation, I always use a text where I have the Italian as well, because some of those mm-hmm. lines uh, are just so wonderful and beautiful and anybody needs to hear them. I can learn a couple of lines of Italian along the way. So, so that one is, is definitely sort of uh, up there. The Hollanders, Robert Hollander and Gene Hollander have a translation of pretty recent one. That's very, very uh, good. It's, it's much more mm-hmm. straightforward and literal. Um, I studied with a translator, Mark Musa at, at Indiana university and mm-hmm. he has a, his penguin translation oh. is still used. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. The great and good Mark Musa. Yes. Yes. And he, he had a, it's, it, there's another penguin one out since, but, but his is still out there. Uh, and there are others, but you know, what's fun is looking at some of these, uh, translations that are kind of adaptations more than translations, you know? So Mary Jo Bang, who's a very accomplished poet, uh, uh-huh. has a, an Inferno translation that's popular and you find it in, in bookstores. And I know she's working, uh, she's told me, I hope I'm not spoiling anything. I know she's working on the purgatory <laughs> now as well, but she kind of gives you a kind of a modern take on Dante. That's not just trying to translate Dante, but trying to kind of uh, trying to render him in kind of the the world that we live in today, uh, and, oh, yeah. and it's really a lot of fun to read. And Sandow uh, uh, Burke uh, has another one as well. Marcus uh, Marcus Sanders and Sandow Burke have one as well that's very popular, uh, but it's kind of written in almost a Los Angeles Valley girl <laughs> slang or something like that. <laughs> okay, okay. But, and it works in, but but you know it's it's useful. I, I use these sometimes in my classes, not to say this is what Dante said, but to show how his meaning uh, kind of evolves in terms of the time and place in which we read mm-hmm. him and how he might make sense to us in ways here differently than he would have obviously in, in the 1300s. Right on. Um, yeah. I also just, in case anyone out there does not know, you can on YouTube find Roberto Benigni uh, reciting it. Wonderful. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, and you should, you should get to listen to Dante in the Italian recited by someone with such a, beautiful voice at least once in your life and, and a tuscan accent right he's, he's yeah, like, yeah 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 it's perfect I, yeah 
It's not my favorite accent, I'll admit, but <laughs> perfect for that. Venetian, um, yes. <laughs> no, I'm not even going to pretend that Venetian is okay. a nice way to speak okay. Italian. There you go. Um, yeah. All right. So uh, let's 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 take a minute. Let's get to the at the very end. Right. We get to the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> well, and uh, that was a shock too, right? I get there. I'm like, okay, right. we're at the Da Vinci Code. Um, and, and Dante's bones are intervening again. Hmm. <laughs> Tell me why you include this. Well, actually, so so just to be clear, it's not exactly the Da Vinci Code. So it's it's one of the Dan Brown novels that comes a little bit later, oh, right? No, it's a, but but it's it's in that it's in the same storyline. Robert Langdon, the, the detective from the Da Vinci Code. Um, right. So and in, in 2013, it, so I think it was not his last one, but the one before that. Uh, Dan Brown wrote a novel called Inferno, right? And so oh, yeah, it, yeah. it was, it was, it, you know, it, 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 I, not his best one. Important. Yeah, yeah, but it was, yeah, uh, it was the best selling book of the year, I'm sure. Uh, and it was made into a film. Ron Howard directed mm-hmm. it in 2016 with Tom Hanks again playing the part of Robert Langdon, the sleuthing Harvard professor, and Felicity Jones, I think, played sort of the the co the co star co protagonist there. Um, and so, right, Dan Brown, he, when this novel came out in 2013 uh, called Inferno, I was already working on this book. And I thought to myself, oh, no, he's going to scoop me here. He's going to write all about Dante's bones. It's going to be because it's such a great mystery story. You know, turns out he doesn't write about Dante's bones. Right. He writes about, I guess, you know, sadly enough, he writes about a viral pandemic <laughs> contagion uh, called the Inferno. So talk about. Uh, timely in some sense for today mm-hmm. um and uh and it becomes this sort of uh this wonderful uh, romp through uh florence and venice and istanbul i think of the three cities in search of this virus langdon has to sort of get there before it's released um i won't give away the whole story uh, but in any case the inferno is basically this prototype uh, uh, saying that you know the world is just horrible and, uh, and 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 we need to sort of do something about it you have a mad scientist who's who's a dante fanatic um so there's nothing directly on the bones themselves except that one object in the story the kind of the key object in the story because it gives the clues to actually finding the virus is dante's death mask and so, mm-hmm. uh, so that's why I included that in my final chapter on the global Dante, because the story of the death mask, while it's not the same as the story Dan Brown tells in his 2013 novel, is a really fascinating story because it's not literally a death mask. We don't think that Dante probably wasn't occurring at that time at that place uh, where they would actually take a cast of the person's face, but it was probably close to what they thought Dante looked like. It probably was a, a sculpted head of Dante made. Uh, maybe uh, within a century of his death by people going back to people who had actually seen him uh, conveying sort of what he looked like. And these death masks probably were fashioned maybe from that 15th century uh, sculpture. So we could actually go today and we can see this death mask. I think it's in the Palazzo Vecchio has a little museum uh, that actually has a death mask from the Dan Brown novel that is stolen in the novel and it gives all the clues. (laughs) Um, But the story of that death mask was actually part of my story because the person who gave that mask to Florence was the Senator Alessandro Dancona, a very famous senator in the early part of the 20th century, who was a Dante scholar and historian. And he had gotten it uh, from, uh, from the owner of the mask as sort of a gift. And Dancona, and he, and Dancona on his, in his will, basically gave it to Florence. Dancona also had some of that Dante dust that we were talking about earlier and that we started our conversation with. Dante dust. And this Dante dust, this was, I think this might be the strangest relic of all because this Dante dust was put into a very beautiful gold medallion, a kind of almost like a pin that somebody would kind of wear. Mm -hmm. 
and so, and, and on the cover, it says, you know, uh, Dante's dust. Uh, and, uh, and you know, on the back, it just has the name of the jeweler, this very famous Florentine jeweler. And so the people who collected this Dante dust in 1865, they essentially, uh, after the bones were removed from the table where they were being examined, they were sort of collecting particles or whatever was left on the table. So we don't know. I can't tell you scientifically if Dante's DNA is actually there or not. Yes. Uh, but we certainly know that it's a relic by virtue of having had contact with his bones. Mm-hmm. Contact relics is a, is a classification right. it's, of relics. It's a second order. Second order like relic, yeah. right. So anyway, the dust was obviously taken. It was distributed. One of the best parts of my story, I think, was trying to kind of track down these relics because they were not part of the official documentation. Nobody wanted to announce that they had stolen some Dante dust and made a relic out of it. Um, but there were eyewitnesses who did leave records that I was able to sort of come across, some of them by accident, just uh, reading through old documents. Um, but, um, but this particular, uh, portion of the Dante dust, uh, Senator Dancona, uh, took possession of it in the late 19th century. And today it's actually in the Senate library in Rome. And one of my most enjoyable, uh, kind of connections was, uh, communicating with the archivist there in, in Rome. Mm. And she, she actually went and she got it out of the safe. They have it in the safe <laughs> and she photographed it for me. And that's, those are the photographs I have. In, in the yeah. book. So Dancona, to go back to Dan Brown, Dancona is the same person who gave the uh, the mask to Florence. And this mask becomes another one of these images of Dante that Dan Brown will use, right, to great effect uh, to sort of uh, convey the sense that Dante is relevant uh, today. And with Benigni and all these other manifestations of Dante in popular culture, the video game, the very famous electronic mm-hmm. arts video game from 2010, we see all of these different images of Dante that you and I have just been talking about, whether he's sort of the, you know, the Italian ideal Mediterranean man, or whether he's the lover of Beatrice, uh, you know, all these very different, uh, somewhat distorted uh, forms that make him sort of a global icon, I think, today. Um, I, and I think that that takes us to a place where we can talk about kind of your overarching argument. Mm-hmm. Like, how would you sum that up for me? Right. So I think it goes back to this idea that, um, that, as over the centuries, people have made physical claims or claims to Dante's physical remains. At the same time, those have been claims, not just on his bones, but those have been claims on his his kind of legitimating authority for whatever political uh, or ideological or religious agenda that you may have. So it varies from the uh, the artists uh, like Byron and the poets like Byron and Foscolo of the early 19th century, obviously to the Florentines before that, to the uh, people... Uh, Kind of working toward unification in the middle of the uh, of the eighteen uh, hundreds uh, to the fascist regime. Each of them is kind of fashioning Dante in their own image, uh, but somehow connecting it to their claims to the physical body itself. They're using that as kind of the springboard to making these uh, these claims to kind of legitimating authority. Dante is kind of the authority for them. So that's 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 I think that's kind of the you know the, the big the big picture argument. I think the other one is, and this is more this is more in terms of the plot of the book, but you know, as Dante kind of, as the portion of his bones that becomes relevant uh, diminishes from the skeleton, the full skeleton, you know, to bones, to fragments, <laughs> to dust, right? So you're going from, from big to small. Oh, his, yeah. his significance, his stature, his cultural stature is growing. He's a, he's a regional figure, a rival, a figure of regional rivalry between Florence and Ravenna, you know, for much of the, the, the early modern period. But then he's going to become a national figure, obviously, for Italians in the 19th century. Then I guess if we want to distinguish between national and nationalist, perhaps, right, he's going to become this nationalist figure with the negative connotations of national, the militarist connotations of nationalism in the early 20th century, World War I and leading into the fascist period. 
And I think, I don't know, could we agree today he's kind of a global figure? Would you, yeah, would you, absolutely. Would you say that no. even, even if people haven't read him? Yeah, abs- yeah. I, I think um, I think probably more people know about him than a lot more people right. know about him than have read him. But definitely, right. Um, and I, the idea that he has this incredibly uh, this power that you you evoke Dante centuries after his death mm-hmm. is really interesting. It's it's what you know that's immortality on this level. Um, and then the irony that he's the one who tells us about the afterlife. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think part of the global appeal, because I've tried to, this is a question that I ask myself a lot is, you know, why, why is he so popular? Even if people you know, don't necessarily even read the book or have any strong connection to the work itself, but why do they sort of still quote him or, or you know, refer to him in different ways? And I think part of it is he's both, you know, kind of high culture, right? He's kind of this, this mm-hmm. canonical writer, oh, right. obviously, yeah. but yet maybe it's the nature of what he's writing. I mean, he's writing in Italian, right? Which is a huge decision on his part, not to write in Latin, as you, as you yeah. know from that period. And so he's already trying to reach a broader audience, right? As, as mm-hmm. many writers today are trying to do. Um, so he's got this kind of um, uh, artistic and, uh, you know, kind of intellectual appeal, this canonical appeal, at the same time that he's very, very popular. You know, it's kind of a, you know, everyone wants to read a story about hell and, and condemning people to hell and, and figuring out what happens to them after. So he's got both this it's, commercial appeal and this and political appeal and this kind of artistic uh, literary appeal. And I think we should like, let's, it's, it's gossipy and kind mm. of bitchy. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like you're, it's, it's a really fun read. Right. Um, Purgatorio is less fun, Paradiso, Mamma Mia, but <laughs> Inferno is so fun. Right. It's like, ooh, ooh, he could have been on TMZ. Well, can I make a pitch for Purgatory though for a second? Okay, yeah, it's, yeah. So, yeah, know, yeah. and this I think it changes with age, I think, or maybe with time. So, I, I, what I, when people ask me, my students ask me, Professor Rafa, what's your favorite part? And I say, well, it depends when you ask me, you know. Um, <laughs> But as I've gotten a little bit older, purgatory has become more important to me, and in part because of, of what I've talked about in this book. Purgatory is the realm, in some ways, it's the most innovative realm because, again, it's mm-hmm. part of the Catholic the- theological system that doesn't exist, obviously, in Protestantism, um, and it's going to cause great problems for Martin Luther, et cetera, um, and it's going to be abused by the Catholic Church uh, in many ways. But, but kind of theoretically or theologically, it's a, I, I find it a very beautiful concept because that's where the dead and the, and the living connect. Right, the, the, the souls in purgatory uh, are, the, are the souls who are uh, are moving to a paradise. You know, they, they, they're not going to hell. You know, they've been saved. They, they have to kind of purge and, and purify themselves to go to paradise. But they're still incredibly nostalgic for the real world they left behind, and they're always asking about everybody back home. You know, how is my family doing? How is my daughter? How is my wife? And, and so there's this can end up praying for the people back on earth. And I remember this growing up with uh, with my grandmother in, in, in you know in mm-hmm. Catholic churches. She would light candles, and you know she was praying for the souls in purgatory, I suppose, right? And so there's this reciprocity that I that I find you know apart from the theology, I just find it a very beautiful sort of concept. Uh, going back to the funeral monuments and cemeteries that we were talking about earlier, it's a connection uh, between mm-hmm. people who are here and people who aren't here anymore, but it still maintains that sort of connection. So purgatory is probably the realm that I talk about most when I'm talking about the divine comedy, uh, because Dante tells amazing stories in purgatory about burials, about soldiers, let's say, who uh, whose bodies were never found and, and what happened to their bodies as opposed to their souls. And so he he's very attuned, I think, in his own way to the importance of ritual and sort of mm-hmm. how we honor the dead and what happens when we desecrate that. Uh, 
uh, that ritual in some sense. And so, uh, and those stories are told mostly in purgatory. So, so that's my pitch for purgatory. You know, it's, it's, it's not, right. it's not as dramatic, yeah. Yeah, not the fireworks. I get it. But if you look at it in that kind of human centered way, I think it, it makes some sense. I have to admit, I haven't read past the Inferno since I was in grad school. Okay. In, you know, 1990 something. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so maybe I should give it a go. Give it a um, the, yeah, give it a, it's worth, it's certainly worth, you know, in this time of pandemic, uh-huh. maybe it's exactly what I need. Uh, all right. Um, all right. That's, thanks so much. So your personal website, which mm. I'll link to uh, on the post on the webpage, right. includes something called Dante Worlds. Ah. Um, I wish that I had had this <laughs> um, when I was in grad school. Thank you. Can, can you do a quick pitch for checking that out? Absolutely. Dante World is a website, as you said. There are also books that go with it, but University of Chicago Press, but, but the website has a lot of information. It was my big my big project, I think, right before I, I started Dante's Bones, and uh, and I have a degree in computer science and mathematics, so it was a lot of fun to work with those people again, even as an Italian professor. I didn't do a lot of the coding, though I did some of it, but it was nice to just collaborate with the, with the techies. Um, mm-hmm. And we built this very, I think, it's a very beautiful website with the graphic design artist Saloni Robertson is a is a very accomplished uh, studio artist and she did a lot of original paintings for the site she she sat in on my class and so it, it gives it gives the user a a geographical navigation through the poem into a, a multimedia mm-hmm. ju- so you click you, you see an image of the inferno or the purgatory or the paradiso you click on a region you go into that region uh, it's 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 old now <laughs> technologically speaking so it's not 3D or anything like that but you get a wonderful array of images uh, I have some audio recordings of the original verses, and then I have my commentary. So I give I give sort of users sort of a commentary of who these characters are and who these illusions are in a way. So it kind of integrates the text and the image and the sound. Uh, but but nav- the geographic navigation, I think, is what kind of sets it apart because there are many wonderful Dante websites out there. But I think this one is still used a lot. I get a lot of feedback on it. Uh, for that uh, reason. So yes, please, um, people who are interested in Dante, it's it's a good guide, I think, as you're reading the poem itself uh, to sort of go along uh, with, with the reading. It's yeah, it really is. The commentary is really very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, 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 you bring it to life in this way that I, I felt connected to the symbolism and it's, it's really nice. Um, and I think for students particularly, and yes, of course, read the books, but also People read this book. We've only we we have hit on some of really cool parts of it. The things that I particularly enjoyed or struck me, but it's a goldmine. This is a great story, and I'm a mystery lover. Um, and I think I think there's something there's some link between historians and mystery lovers. I don't know what that is, but um, you're gonna love this. It's going to be interesting. So do this, read this book. Um, so this is. Uh, I know you just finished it. Mm-hmm. I, you just finished this and you deserve a breather, but I am sure you're working on something new. So No breather for me. So uh, Yeah, what's next? <laughs> I, I, I was very lucky. <laughs> I, I, I just won a, a National Endowment for Humanities Fellowship. It, it, it's called a Public Scholar Fellowship. Scholars Fellowship. Yes, yes. It's a, Congratulations. Yes, it, it was a very, very, I have to say, a, a bit of a surprise, but a very welcome surprise. Um, but I, I won this fellowship to work on, over the next year on my next project, which kind of comes out of Dante's Bones, a little bit the last chapter where I talk about Longfellow and Dante in the current moment. It's going to be a book specifically on Dante's American afterlife. So whereas I focus mostly on Dante in Italy, 
in Dante's mm-hmm. Bones. This next book, which I promise will be much shorter and won't take me 10 years. <laughs> um, I've already done some work on it. But it builds on some of the shorter pieces I've, I've written. People can see these also on my website under the essays on Mad Men, let's say the television series Mad Men, the Dan Brown novel we talked about, and some other uh, kind of more contemporary uh, resonances of, of Dante. Um, but I'm going to be tracing Dante's uh, influence in American culture, not just literary culture. I'll start with Longfellow in the Civil War, but I'll focus a lot on the political liberation theme. But I'll be taking it through the early 20th century when we start to see statues of Dante appear in Italian-American funded uh, events mm-hmm. in the United States. Mm-hmm. There's one right across from Lincoln Center in New York City, another one in Washington, D.C. These were put there in 1921. Uh, some very, very uh, powerful Dante movies that sort of come up in the 1930s. In, uh, in Hollywood. Uh, and I'll take it all the way through to the present time, including the time we're living in now when people are quoting Dante uh, during the pandemic and during the, uh, the protests for racial justice. And they're talking about Dante's disdain for those who were neutral in times of moral crisis. John F. Kennedy, right. Martin Luther King also would quote that over time. So those are the kinds of things that I'm really looking forward to, uh, to, to researching more on and, and sort of bringing in, in, in the book I work on in the next year, thanks to the funding. So I don't get to teach uh, Dante this mm. next year, uh, but I get to do wow. lots, lots of reading and writing on Dante. If you're going to take a year off, this is a good one. I think so. Uh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Once again, uh, everybody, the book is Dante's Bones, How a Poet Invented Italy. Highly recommended. Um, and I am a guy. I'm excited about reading the next one. That sounds really cool. Thank you so much, Nana. Uh, great talking to you. Thanks so much. It's great to talk to you.